المتقين ولا عقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صلي وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Welcome to another lesson of QP and Alhamdulillah Ta'ala insha'Allah Today we are going to be beginning with the tafsir of Surah Al-Shams but before we do that, just to uh, recap over what we did last week. In our last lesson, when we finished off with Surah Al-Layl, the final few verses of Surah Al-Layl, as we mentioned, are those verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts to speak about the reward of those who are the people who chose the path of ease. And the path that Allah Azza describes as being the path of yusr, of ease. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about those people and what their reward is. And the greatest reward that Allah Azza wa has preserved for them and has prepared for them is that they will be saved from the punishment of the fire. And that is the greatest reward that Allah Azza wa can give to the people of Jannah, that they will be freed from the fire. And that is why the people of Jannah in Jannah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to them, and obviously there are great rewards in Jannah once the people of Jannah enter into Jannah from the from receiving the pleasure of Allah Azza wa Jalla and be able to see the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Jannah. But the people of Jannah, one of the things that they will say to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when Allah Azza wa will ask them, is there anything more that you want from me? They will say, oh Allah, did you not already save us from your punishment and interest into Jannah? And so that is from the greatest rewards of the people of Jannah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give them that safety from the fire of hell. May Allah Azza wa make us from amongst those people. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described them. And from the descriptions that are given to those people is that there are those who spend in the path of Allah Azza wa in order to purify themselves and their wealth and so on and so forth. And there are those, and Allah Azza wa mentions from amongst those people are those who when they give, they don't seek favor from anyone. But they only seek the face of their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah says in the final verse of Surah Al-Layn, وَلَا سَوْفَ يَرْضَى And indeed those people will be satisfied, meaning that they will be pleased with what Allah has prepared for them in terms of reward. And we mentioned that at first and foremost, the people, or one of the first and foremost of those people that is being referred to is none other than Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu an, the famous companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the best of this ummah, after its messenger and Prophet And so Abu Bakr is at the head of those people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will honor in that way. And we mentioned the hadith, uh, I think last week uh, in the last lesson concerning Abu Bakr and how the Prophet told him that he will have all of the gates of Jannah open towards him. And there are a number of narrations that during the time of the Prophet in his lifetime, that the Prophet gave him the guarantee that he would be from amongst the people of Jannah. And from amongst those most beautiful indications of the station of Abu Bakr radiallahu an, is those hadith during the uh, final illness of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam asked Abu Bakr radiallahu an, deputized him to lead the salah, and that shows his station not only in the sight of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but amongst the companions. And so when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam passed away, they chose none other than Abu Bakr radiallahu an to lead this ummah. So that was essentially the conclusion of Surah Al-Layl. And inshallah ta'ala, today we come on to a new surah, and that is the tafsir of Surah Al-Shams, the 91st surah of the Qur'an. And Surah Al-Shams uh, has a number of names by which it is known in the books of tafsir and hadith. 
the first of those names is the name that we're very familiar with and the one that most of us would know the surah by and that is the name of the surah being surah shams and ibn ashur rahimullah ta'ala he said that this is the name that you will find in the vast majority of the books of tafsir and the books of the old manuscripts of the quran when they would when they would uh, make copies of the quran this surah was often referred to as being surah shams and it's mentioned by that name by a number of the early scholars of hadith and tafsir and those who then followed them, such as Ibn Qutaybah and Imam Nasai in his Sunan and Ibn Hazm and Ibn Abi Hatim in his Tafsir before Ibn Hazm, Ibn Abi Hatim is one of the early ones, Al Baghawi, Ibn Atiyah, and Imam al Shawkani, Ali, Muhammadullah, Jamian. So those are from amongst the scholars, and there are others who refer to this surah as being Surah to Shams. And so it's one of the names, and obviously it's the name that today we know the surah by. So today, in most places, when this surah is being referred to, it is referred to as being Surah Shams. So that's the first name. The second name by which the Surah is also known is the entirety of the first verse. The entirety of the first verse. So it is known as Surah Wa Shamsi Wa Duhaha. Surah Wa Shamsi Wa Duhaha. And this is the name that you will find in some of the books of Hadith. And also you will find in some of the books of Tafsir. But also you will find it as uh, as as being referred to in the actual texts of certain hadith. That when this surah is being referred to, and we will mention that shortly, inshallah ta'ala, but when the surah is being referred to, it is often referred to as being suratu wa shamsi wa duhaha in the actual text of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as well. So, from amongst the, the early scholars who refer to this surah, suratu wa shamsi wa duhaha, which is essentially the entirety of the first verse, is Abdul Razak al-San'ani, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his in his famous tafsir, uh, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, rahimahullah ta'ala also, and Imam al-Bukhari and Imam al-Tirmidhi in their collections of hadith refer to the surah as surah al-Shamsi wa duhaha, and Imam al-Tabari in his famous tafsir al-Hakim in his mustadrak, and Ibn Kathir alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. And so you can see that many of the uh, early scholars of hadith and also some of the early scholars of tafsir, and especially those scholars of tafsir that were that they often narrate or gather narrations in the tafsir, they refer to the surah as being surah to shamsi wa duhaha. So that's the second name by which it is known. So the first name was surah shams, the second is surah wa shamsi wa duhaha, and then the third name by which it is known is surah to shams, which is just the first portion of the first verse of the surah. Surah to shams with the wow. So the difference between the first name and the third name is that the first name has no wow, it is just surah shams. The third one is wa with the waw, washams. And this is how Adani and Sakhawi and others refer to the surah. So essentially, it has three names by which it is known in the books of tafsir, in the books of ulum and Quran, Quranic sciences, and in the books of hadith and so on, narrations. We have surat ashams, suratu washamsi wa duhaha, which is the entirety of the first verse, and then surah washams, which is just adding the waw to the beginning of that word. Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, that the name that he found was most common in the books of Hadith and Tafsir and so on is Surat Ash-Shams, the first name by which it became famous. But then you have others such as Imam Bukhari, he says, who called it Washamsi Waduhaha. Washamsi Waduhaha. Ibn Ashur ta'ala says, and I think that this is a better name, meaning to name it with the entirety of the first verse, he says, I think it is better. Why? Because he says otherwise it may be confused with another surah which also begins by mentioning the sun at the beginning and that is surat idha shamsi idha shamsu kuwirat idha shamsu kuwirat and obviously surah idha shamsu kuwirat is famously known now as surat al-takwir surat al-takwir 
But in the early days when those names weren't so formalized or set and they weren't well established, meaning not everyone named referred to the surah in the same way, then surah al-shams may have or could have referred to more than one surah. So some, some people may have become confused, Ibn Ashura is saying, Ibn Ashura is saying, between Surah Al-Shams, which is Washamsi Waduhaha, and Surah Takwir, which is either Shams Kubirat, because both of them have the letter or the word Ashams, which means the sun at the beginning. So he says, therefore, I think in order to you know, kind of get out of that confusion, to stay away from that confusion, we call it Washamsi Waduhaha. But obviously in our time now, in the vast majority, if not in all of the Musahif, the names of the surahs, as we know, are pretty much standardized and established. And so therefore, when we say surat was shams, everyone more or less knows that it's referring to shamsi wa duhaha, where a surah either shamsu kuwirat is referred to as surah takwir. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Uh, as I said, though, what you will find in the books of, of hadith is that often when this surah is being referred to, it was referred to in the narrations of hadith by the entirety of the first verse. So it's referred to in the sunnah and in the books of hadith in the narrations as being surah wa shamsi wa duhaha. And there are a number of examples of this. The first of them is in a tirmidhi, in Jami' al-Tirmidhi, in the, um, in the narration of Buraydat al-Aslami. He says that the Prophet wasallam, when he would lead Salatul Isha, meaning Salatul Isha, he would often read surahs like Washamsi Waduhaha, Surah Washamsi Waduhaha, and surahs similar to it. One of the things that you will find in the books of narration and hadith, and we've spoken about this before, and we were speaking about how the uh, scholars or the early Muslims, the early generations, in the time of the companions and then their students and so on, the very early generations, the way that they would categorize or the way, if you like, they would um, they would make sections in the Quran. So, for example, before we had Ajza', before we had the 30 Ajza', the 30 Juz of the Qur'an, they would have a different way. And the way that they would do it is with Surah. So, you had the seven long Surahs, the Sabah Tiwar, and then you have, for example, the Mathani, and you have all of those ones that we said, and then the Mufassal, right? From the, uh, the Tiwar al-Mufassal, and the Awsat al-Mufassal, and the Qisar al-Mufassal. And so, when they were measuring things, they would often measure in that way. And that's why you will even find that the companions would measure in that way, that the Prophet stood the length of 40 verses of recitation, 50 verses of recitation. He used to often read surahs like Washamsi wa Duhaha, or surah, or from the Tiwar al Mufassal, and so on. Why? Because they're giving you an approximate timing, an estimation of how long something is. The one that you will most find in terms of Salatul Isha is surahs like Washamsi wa Duhaha, and it was often mentioned in the context. Washamsi wa Duhaha and surahs like it, because we know in the overall hadith of the Prophet, وسلم, when he came to Salatul Isha, he would read from the Awsatul Mufassal. And the Awsatul Mufassal are from Surah Amma Yatisa'aloon, which is Surah Al-Naba' all the way to Surah Al-Duha. These are known as the Middle Mufassal. Mufassal means, as we said before, uh, surahs that are often, uh, that, that are often um, separated by a new surah. So they're short surahs. Essentially, Mufassal means, uh, a fassal is basically a uh, kind of a break, right? And the break comes in every time you have Bismillah Rahman Rahim, basically meaning one surah ends and the next one begins. So they're called Mufassal because they have they are very short and so they have a lot of breaks, meaning that they have a lot of basmalas. You're always starting on your surah as opposed to Baqarah, Ali Imran, and Nisa, Maida. Those surahs are a juz or too long. And so therefore you don't have many breaks. Whereas once you hit Surah Qaf and the surahs that come after it, the, the end of the 26 Juz and then 27, 28, 29, 30, they become shorter and shorter and the Basmala comes more and more often. 
Then what they did is that they divided those Mufassar, which is from Surah Qaf to Surah Nas, as we said, into three categories. Surah Qaf all the way up to Surah Al-Naba at the beginning of the 30th Juz. These are known as the Tuyuar Al-Mufassal. And those are the types of surahs, those are the proximal length of surahs that the companions say the Prophet would recite in, in Salatul Fajr. Now obviously there is a difference also because the length of, for example, something like Surah Qaf and some of the surahs within some of the ajzal like Surah Al-Mujadila, Surah Al-Hashar are longer than, for example, when we say Surah Al-Qiyam, right, which is much shorter in comparison, relatively speaking. And so therefore it's not only... Uh, that all of them are approximately the same. No, there is a spectrum and there is differences amongst them as well. What you will find then is that in Salatul Isha, they say the Prophet ﷺ would read from the Usatul Mufassal, like Ammayt Al-Sa'aloon, all the way up to uh, the end of Surah Al-Layl. Now those surahs obviously also are, are differing, not as much maybe as the ones in the Tawal Mufassal, but there is also a difference. Ammayt Al-Sa'aloon is much longer than, for example, something like Wal-Layli Ida Yaqsha and Wal-Shamsi Waduhaha. And so therefore the Prophet ﷺ would choose from these surahs. What you will find is often they will say, the companions, those who went into even further detail. So you have those companions who say he would read from the Awsat al-Mufassal. And they just make it, give you the general category. But then you have companions who say, and they give you actual examples of the types of surahs, similar surahs. And what you will often find is that they mention in those ahadith surahs like Sabbihisma Rabbika Ala Washamsi Waduhaha and they are obviously very similar in terms of their length. And so you have that extra detail also. The point is that we know that the Prophet ﷺ generally in those salawat, in when he's leading the people in congregation, because of the many people that were behind him, because there's elderly people and people who are sick and people who have jobs and responsibilities and other things, he would try to shorten those salahs for them in order for them to be able to go home and, and finish off their, their chores and so on and so forth. The exception to that being Salat al-Fajr, which is the longer of those of those salawat, and that's because Fajr is at the beginning of the day, and people are awake and they're fresh, and people have yet to go to work, they've yet to, you know, the responsibilities of their families, the children are yet to wake up and so on, and so it is a time when they're more able to do something. So anyway, the point of this being that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to us, uh, or is mentioned in some narrations, that in Salatul Isha, and the name that is given, the point of this being these narrations, to show you that actually in many of the hadith in which the surah is mentioned, it is mentioned by this name, Washamsi Waduhaha, or Ashamsi Waduhaha, more or less by its first verse. Another example of this is in the hadith uh, of Mu'adh radiallahu and the famous hadith, when Mu'adh radiallahu leads us, reads Salatul Isha and he prays with the Prophet وسلم, in Masjid al Nabawi. And then he goes to his people towards Quba and he goes to them and he prays with them again. And there are different wordings of, of that surah and, and, and of the incident rather and what surah he recited with his people and why he made it so long. Some narrations say that he recited from Surah Al-Baqarah. And other narrations uh, say that he recited from a surah like Surah Al-Qamar. Surah Al-Qamar is in the 27th Jews of the Quran and it's from the Tiwar Al-Mufassal. So you have different narrations, but the point of this being essentially they will agree on the essence of the story, even though some of those details may differ from narrator to narrator. And the essence of the story, as we know, is that Mu'adh radiallahu anh made the prayer long. One of the people behind him had job in the morning, had to work, he was busy, he was tired, and he needed to go. And so he left Mu'adh radiallahu anh, prayed his isha by himself, left the jama'ah, meaning the congregational prayer, prayed by himself, and he went home. When the people after the prayer, they said to Mu'adh, that person, that's what he did. 
And so they consider it to be a sign of hypocrisy because that's what the hypocrites do. They don't stay with the prayer. They become lazy and so on. So when that companion heard what the people were saying about him, he went to the Prophet ﷺ because he didn't leave out of any sense of hypocrisy or any dislike for Islam or the Salah. It's just his situation warranted warranted that he couldn't stay for that such a long lengthy prayer. And so he complained to the Prophet ﷺ about the Imamah of Mu'adh about his style of leading the prayer and his length and his choice of surahs and so on. And that is when the Prophet ﷺ said to Mu'adh don't be a fitna for people, but if you're going to lead, then pray in this salah, meaning in Isha, with surahs like وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا and سَبِّحِ اسْمَ رَبِّكَ الْعَلَىٰ And in some narrations you will find the addition, addition of a third surah being mentioned, and that is surah وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَىٰ And so you will find that in some of the narrations of, of this hadith also. And this is a famous uh, hadith, and it is a hadith that's worth studying and, and benefiting from and deducing from it many lessons. It's an amazing example of the beauty of our Islam and balance in our religion. Because now Mu'adh on the face of it isn't doing anything wrong. He's leading the Salah, he's praying in congregation. Not only that, but he's reading from the Quran and he's lengthening the prayer. And the general rule would say that the, the, the longer the prayer, the more that you lengthen it, the more Quran that you recite in it, the more that you read, the more that you uh, the more that you're in the ibadah, the act of worship in itself, the better, right? The greater the reward because you're spending your time worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But look at the beauty of Islam, where the Prophet is saying, No, actually, there is a level and a limit. If you transgress beyond it, then that which is in essence good and it's ibadah and it's worship and it's a means of coming closer to Allah can actually become a fitna for some people and detrimental and harmful to them. And so that is something which the Imam, that's why the Imam needs to be someone of wisdom and knowledge and experience. And he has to be able to understand what's going on. And that's why when you look, for example, a very similar example to this is the hadith in which the Prophet is traveling. And if you look at the surahs the companions say the Prophet recited whilst he was traveling, what you will find in the vast majority of cases is that they were very short surahs. Very short surahs. He's reading surahs like, إِذَا زُلْزِلَةِ الْأَرْضُ زِلْزَالَهَا and those types of is making them very short. That's the vast majority. Why? Because when you're traveling, you're busy and you're preoccupied and your mind is, you know, you're not comfortable and maybe you're not even praying in a nice prayer area, but you're praying outside in the middle of the road or you're somewhere in the desert or wherever you are. And so it's difficult. And when you're in that situation, people are less likely to be able to concentrate on khushur because their mind's wandering and it's already preoccupied and it's already busy and they're tired and they're fatigued and maybe they're hungry and so on and they're uncomfortable. And so they're less likely to be able to concentrate in salah. And so the Prophet would understand the situation of the people. He understands what it is that they're doing. He understands their needs and the Prophet then acts accordingly. And so that's essentially what we have. We have the Prophet understanding the needs of the people, teaching this to the likes of Mu'ad ibn Jabal Mu'ad is a scholar in his own right. He's one of the most knowledgeable of the companions. He's someone who from amongst the companions is known to be from their scholars and from their muftis and amongst the, the, the generation of the companions But everyone's liable to make mistakes and have shortcomings and so on and so forth. And so the Prophet teaches him this amazing, uh, amazing uh, lesson. And from, from the most amazing lessons from this hadith is how the Prophet interacts with that man who broke the prayer left. You see, if that was the majority of us, we would have acted like some of those companions who said that maybe he's a hypocrite or he's got signs of hypocrisy or maybe there's something wrong with his iman or with his religion and so on. 
But what you will find is when those people come to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ doesn't rush to judgment, doesn't rush to reaching a conclusion. But what he does is he asks, he inquires, he wants to get to the bottom of the issue. Why did you do this? What's the reason behind it? And you will find numerous hadith where the Prophet ﷺ will do this sometimes with the major companions like Abu Bakr and Umar. Why did you do this, O Umar? What's the reasoning behind it? Why did you think to do this? And sometimes with other people who come and say, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I committed such and such a sin or I did such and such. What was your intention? Why did you do it? Maybe you were asleep. Maybe you were forgetful. Maybe you didn't know the ruling. Maybe, maybe, maybe. The Prophet ﷺ is trying to get to the essence of the issue and try to understand this person. And the Prophet ﷺ in this type of setting is not a judge, it's not a courthouse. He's not listening to someone's uh, legal complaint or legal issue where he has to pass judgment and these are people's rights and so on. But he wants people to come closer to Islam. And that's why in one of the narrations of the Hadith of Mu'ad, he says, ant? Are you someone who causes fitna for people? Mu'ad, how is he going to cause fitna for people? Using the salah. So that means that sometimes even deeds of worship, acts of worship, deeds that are meant to bring you closer to Allah can for some people become a means of fitna and trial and test because that is how shaitan works. Shaitan can use acts of worship and make them into trials and tests for certain people. So the da'i, the scholar, the imam, the student of knowledge, they need to be aware of the traps of shaitan and not allow people to fall into those traps and make acts of worship into sometimes acts which may be a trial and a test for them. Right? And that is why the Prophet ﷺ said in some of the narrations, Amongst you are those who cast other people away. You chase them away. Because this person comes to the masjid, maybe they think for the first time the whole week or the whole month they have been to the masjid and think, you know what, I just want to go and read Maghrib. I want to go and pray Maghrib, Maghrib, inshallah, five, ten minutes I have, I can spare, I can go and pray and then I'll leave. But he comes and he enters into the masjid, says Allahu Akbar, and the Imam starts with Surah Al-Baqarah. The Imam starts with Surah Maryam, Surah Taha, starts leading, like reading two pages, uh, Raqqa and so on. Because the Imam, mashallah, he, he loves the Quran and he, he's enjoying the recitation of the Quran and so on. But this person who's praying with him doesn't have such a high level of Iman, doesn't have such an attachment to the Masjid and the Salah. So for them now, the next time they think, oh, let me go and pray Maghrib, it's like, no, that's a half an hour job now. That's not something which I can just go and do. That's something which is going to take a greater amount and deal of time and effort from me. And that's why it's important to have that level of understanding amongst the scholars and so on and so forth. And you will find that imams who understand this and they have that fiqh, they understand. Like in Hajj, for those of you that have made Hajj, especially obviously now with COVID, may Allah which make things easy. But before that, one of the things that you will always find in the Haram in Mecca during the days of Hajj, and I mean the actual days of Hajj themselves, the day of Arafah and those days of Hajj when people are all converging upon the Haram and they're making Tawaf and Sa'i and so on, what you will often find is the Adhan goes and literally 10-15 seconds later they give the Iqamah. They don't wait for 10-15 minutes for people to come as you normally do. You leave a gap between the Adhan and the Qamah, people pray their Sunnahs and so on. Why? Why do they start the Salah straight away? Because they know that there's people, they're busy, they're trying to make Tawaf, they're trying to make Sa'i, the place is congested, there's so many crowds, there's so many people trying to leave and come and enter and exit and so on. And so why stop people now? Because that time between the Adhan and the Qama, you're almost in limbo. Because people are starting to pray their Sunnahs, people are going to start praying, doing other things, and then you can't make Tawaf, you can't make Sa'i, people have just started, stopped everywhere, made their roles, becomes difficult. And so from the hikmah of the imam is they know the situation. Okay, at the moment, this is what we have to do. And so that's what they do, right? And so this is something which is extremely important. That's why the scholars used to like 
that the people who lead the salah, the imam, is also a person of knowledge. Yes, they have the Quran, and they memorize the Quran, and they know the rulings of Tajweed and so on, but they're also a person of some knowledge, especially when it comes to the ahkam of salah, the, the rulings of salah and the fiqh of salah because of how important it is. And this we take from the hadith of, of Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. In another hadith, also again to speak about the naming of this surah in the text of hadith, uh, hadith of Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu in, in the surah of Nasa'i. Uh, Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu said, I never prayed behind anyone after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who was more, more similar to the Prophet sallallahu in the way that they prayed than so and so. We prayed with him one time and he would make the first two rak'ahs of Salatul Dhuhr long and he would make the last two short. And he would make the Salatul Asr shorter, meaning they say that the, the first two rak'ahs of Salatul Asr, the, the Prophet ﷺ would pray them like the last two rak'ahs of Salatul Dhuhr. And then the last two rak'ahs of Asr are even shorter. And then in Salatul Maghrib, he would read with the short Mufassal, right, which is from Duha to Nas. And then in Isha, he would read with the likes of Washamsi wa Duhaha, and that's the point of, of mentioning this hadith. And then in Salatul Fajr, he would read with two longer surahs. And this is the hadith. In the Nasa'i Abu Huraira radiallahu But again, to show you that when it comes to Salatul Isha, and they're giving you an approximation of the recitation of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, then the surah that is often mentioned is Surah to Ash-Shamsi wa Duhaha. And so it's mentioned in this context in the books of Hadith, but it also shows you that the name that was common amongst the companions is the naming of it with the entirety of its first verse that they would often refer to as being Surah to Ash-Shamsi wa Duhaha. I don't think that you come across uh, in those early narrations, anyone who called it Surah Al-Shams. And again, as Ibn Ashur said, the reason for that is because there is more than one Surah in the Quran that begins with the mention of the sun. And because of that, then it causes confusion. And so whether it's that confusion, you will find that the scholars of Hadith and the companions and the early scholars of Islam, they would come out of that confusion by making sure that they mention to you in its entirety what it is. And this is something which is extremely important for right? as students of knowledge, don't just think about something without necessarily understanding what is being said. Sometimes we take words and we understand them in the way that we understand them today, not necessarily the way that it's being understood then or what's being referred to. So, for example, in the uh, in the famous uh, in the famous narration uh, in which the Prophet وسلم, when he married Zainab binti Jahsh radiyallahu anha, Zainab bin Jahsh, one of the wives of the Prophet وسلم, the hadith of Anas radiyallahu anha. Sinan Bukhari and other than Bukhari. And Anas radiallahu anhu says, and because uh, when the Prophet married Zainab radiallahu anha, it was the biggest walima that he, that he carried at sallallahu alayhi wa The Prophet married a number of times as we know. And normally his walima, his wedding feast was very humble. In the time of, 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 uh, in the, in the time of his marriage to Zainab, he sacrificed, slaughtered the sheep and he called many people from Medina. Some narrations say until all of the Muslims came and they ate to their fill because the Prophet made dua for barakah over the meat of that one sheep, even though it's one sheep, right? And one sheep isn't enough for a whole town or a whole village or, you know, a group of people, a whole city. But because of the barakah of the dua of the Prophet the blessing of his dua, it was sufficient. The hadith of Zainab, Anas radiallahu anhu, says that after everyone left, the Prophet put down his curtain, the veil of his house, meaning he closed off his house to me. And that is when the verse of hijab was revealed. فَنَزْلَتْ آيَةُ hijab. Now most of us, if we hear to hear the, the, the wording of ayatul hijab, the verse of hijab was being referred to, we will think that it's referring to the verses that speak about covering, right? Covering, the women covering themselves 
the verses in Surah Al-Hazab, O Prophet, say to your wives and say to your daughters and say to the believing women to cover yourselves, those verses. But actually in other narrations of this hadith, like the one in Sahih Muslim and so on, it actually mentions the verse that is being referred to. And the verse that is being referred to is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَإِذَا سَأَلْتُمُوهُنَّ فَاسْأَلُوهُنَّ مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابٍ if you want to speak to the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, then speak to them behind the veil. Meaning, whilst they are covered, or if you go into the houses, there will be a covering between you. And that is why you will find, even in the narrations of Aisha after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, when the students would come, and they would come to study with her and to learn with her, if they were not from her maharim, it wasn't her nephews and people that she was related to that she could sit with openly, they would say we would, she would have a veil. Right? She had a hijab between us and between her. So the verse of hijab that is being referred to here is not the verse of covering for women. That was already done. What is being referred to now is a different type of covering. And that is that even in their houses, they should speak behind a veil. And so it's important to understand the terminology and what is being referred to and what is being meant. And that is why when you come to a hadith, often what you will find is that one narration is explained by other wordings of the same narration. To bring them all together is something which is extremely important and something which the scholars spent a lot of time and effort doing. But anyway, we're, we're obviously digressing in terms of what it is that we're speaking about here. But those narrations, I wanted to bring them so that we would understand the uh, meaning of Ushams or the narration of Ushamsi wa Duhaha and its appearance in the early texts of the Quran, of the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This surah in terms of its revelation uh, all of the scholars agree that it is a Makki surah, meaning that it was revealed before Hijrah. And that is the position of all of the scholars with tafsir, and uh, it is all the way back to the likes of Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنهما, that he said that it is a Makki surah. And that's why Al Qurtubi said it is a Makki surah by agreement. And Al Shawkani said it is Makkiya bila khilaf, without any difference of opinion. And Ibn Ashur said something similar it is Makkiya bil ittifaq, by agreement of the scholars of. Of tafsir, and so the scholars have agreed that Surah to Shamsi or Duhaha is a surah which is Makki. There is no difference of opinion amongst them. So that brings us to the end of the introduction of the surah. So we know that the surah has three names by which it is known. It is known by Surah Shams, Surah Washamsi or Duhaha, and Surah to Washams. Ashams, Washams, and Washamsi or Duhaha by those three names. We know that it's mentioned in a number of places in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, in the statements of the companions when they're describing the length of the Salah and particularly the length of recitation for Salatul Isha that the Prophet ﷺ would have. They compare it often by mentioning the name of the Surah was Shamsi wa Duhaha. And we've also learned that there is a Makki Surah by agreement of the scholars of Tafsir. So now we come to the first verse of the Surah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi min shaytanir rajeem. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والشمس وضحاها Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says by the sun in its morning brightness and that's the uh, translation of, of Abdul, Professor Abdul Halim uh, Muhsin Khan says by the sun and its brightness Mufti Taqi I swear by the sun and his broad light and Sahih International by the sun and its brightness very similar in terms of the translations that we have here the scholars say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and in this surah, as we know, uh, similar to Surah Al-Layl, the opening passage of this surah will be a number of oaths that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes. And that's something that you find within these surahs now that we're entering into this surah and Surah Al-Layl, the one that we took before, Surah Al-Layl and Surah Al-Balad and Surah Al-Fajr. A lot of these surahs now, and even going on beyond that, 
a lot of these surahs now in the 30th juz, they begin with Allah taking oaths, either one oath or more than an oath. And they have, and this is something that you find throughout the 30th juz, even in the surahs that we took before, like Surah Al-Asr and Surah Al-Teen and Surah Al-Duha. These are all surahs of oaths, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes oaths. This surah is also a surah that has a number of oaths. This particular verse, which is verse number one of Surah Al-Shams, some of the scholars say that it has two oaths that Allah takes. وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا Is the waw here, لِلْعَطْفِ Because the waw here, and the waw in the Arabic language as we know, has a number of meanings, has a number of functions. One of them is that it is atf. It comes with the meaning of and, by the morning and its brightness. The and here, is it just simply to follow on from the sun because one of the things that the sun gives is that it is brightness? Or is it, as some of the scholars said, and it seems to be the opinion of many of the scholars with tafsir, that it is a secondary oath that Allah is taking. Allah takes an oath by the sun and then he takes a second oath by the brightness of the sun, meaning its lights and its rays. And that was the position that was chosen by the likes of Imam Al-Qurtubi and Al-Shawkani, that they said that it is Qasimun Thanin. It is a secondary uh, or a second uh, oath that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken. So Allah Azza takes an oath by the sun. And the sun, we know what the sun is. Allah Azza then says, وَضُحَاهَا What is duhaha? The duha, as we know, because we cover this in surah, uh, it refers to the morning. And especially when the morning reaches its peak, meaning that the brightness of the sun is 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 major in, in the sky, meaning that the, the, the morning is wound into its way. The duha, the sun is bright and the morning has come, meaning that all of the earth or, or that part that you're in, the land that you're in, is filled with the brightness of the sun. That is the meaning of a duha and from it we have the prayer which is a duha. And so it starts from obviously sunrise, but it extends to all the way more or less up until dhuhr. And so as the sun gets higher and higher, it becomes brighter and brighter. And so that is a duha. And Al-Mubarrid, one of the scholars of the Arabic language, he said, that the meaning of al-duha, it's asl, the origin of the word, comes from the word al-dih. And al-dih means the light of the sun, the rays and the brightness of the sun. And that is why you find that the tafsir of the majority of the scholars of tafsir for duhaha is that it refers to brightness or refers to the light of the sun. And that's why you have Mufti Taqi choosing that uh, particular wording in his translation, uh, I swear by the sun and, his, and its broad light, right, and its broad light. And that was the position chosen by Mujahid Ta'ala. Mujahid said, Duhaha refers to the light of the sun, right? And the brightness, the light, essentially kind of means the same thing. And Abu Haytham said something very similar. He said, Duha is the opposite of shade. So the opposite of shade is the light of the sun. And it is the light as it strikes the earth, meaning as the sun becomes, strikes the earth and the ground and it becomes filled with brightness. That is the meaning of Duha. Al-Imam Al-Tabari, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he mentioned kind of like both of those, uh, both of those positions. He said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the sun and he takes an oath by the light of the sun. And then he says, and some of the scholars then differ as to the meaning of a duha, what it's referring to. So some of the scholars said that it refers to the daylight, refers to the day itself. It is all of the day. So from the morning until the evening, that is all duha. Right? All of the day is called duha. And he said that that was the statement of qatada. And he said, and others said, as Mujahid said, that it's referring to the brightness and the rays of the sun. 
Imam al-Tabari himself when he came then to choose between those positions, he said, and what is correct is to say that Allah took an oath by the, by the sun and by the daylight. Because the light of the sun, the rays of the sun, the brightness of the sun, all of them refer to the daylight, meaning essentially that the statement of Qatada and Mujahid rahmatullah is one and the same thing, right? Is one and the same thing. And so he essentially reconciles and combines between those statements that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore is taking an oath by the sun and he's taking an oath by the rays of the sun and the light of the sun. The teacher of our teachers, Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that these are two oaths that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes. And each one Allah Azza wa Jalla takes an oath by because each one in and of themselves is a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is magnificent in its own creation. So he says that Allah Azza wa Jalla takes an oath by the sun. And the sun in and of itself, even if you were to remove the light element from the sun, is still an amazing sign from the signs of Allah Azza wa Jalla, an amazing creation from the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The sun as an as a, as the creation of Allah, as an object, as an entity, uh, the heat of the sun and everything that it contains, uh, the Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he says, that in itself is an amazing sign from the signs of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And the sun is used as we know, uh, you know, in, for its heat. It's used as we know for us to measure time and to measure dates and to measure years and the passage of time and so on. And even on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, when Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, as we know, will remove the light element from the sun, but the heat of it will remain. And it will be brought close to the heads of creation on Yawm Al-Qiyamah to the extent that the people will sweat profusely. Some of the narrations of that hadith say, ala qadri meel, that it will only be a mile in terms of the distance between us and between the sun. And we know now the heat of the sun, uh, you know, like sitting, for example, in Saudi Arabia now, or if you go to places like Egypt, or you go to some of the deserts in Africa and other places in, in North America and so on, wherever there's deserts, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day, when the temperatures reach the high 40s and into the 50s, we know how powerful that sun is, even though the sun is millions of, of light years away. Imagine then the sun is only a mile from the heads of creation. On that day, the people will sweat profusely, and each person's sweat, as we know, will be dependent upon the level of their iman. So some people only up to their ankles, and other people up to their knees, and other people up to their waists, and some people up to their noses, meaning that they will almost be drowning within their own sweat. And that is from the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, that each person, the sun will affect them differently, and it will affect them in different ways, all of them according to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed for people, and that day in accordance to their iman, in accordance to their actions. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla will remove from it its light, but its heat will remain. Right? It's almost like we have the eclipse now, when you have an eclipse, it is the light that is shaded, but the heat of the sun still remains. Right? And so that is similar to what will happen on that Yawm Al-Qiyamah, and that's what is referred to uh, as Taqweer, right? the Shamsu Kuwirat, and so on, meaning its light is what is being removed, not necessarily its heat. And so, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shawqiti, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he says, therefore the sun in and of itself is from the amazing signs of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And from its amazing signs is the light of the sun. So even if you were just to take the light element of the sun by itself, it is a great sign from the signs of Allah and a great creation from the creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because how much do we benefit from the light, right? How much of our body clocks and our system, our well-being, our health is dependent upon sunlight, right? And that's why you find that people who, 
you know, even uh, there are studies that say that in places like in, in Europe, Northern Europe and so on, where we have extremely in the winter months where we where the nights become very long and the days become very short. Right In the UK, it's not so bad, you know, to an extent. But even in the UK, about 4 p.m., half three in the in the winter months, Maghrib comes in. And Fajr won't be until like 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. So you have an extremely long night and a very short day. You go further up north into Scandinavia and those types of countries, countries like Norway and Sweden and so on, it is even more so where the night is far, far greater and the daylight is far, far shorter. There are studies that say that people are more likely to become upset and depressed and their well-being is likely to become lower during those months and during those days because the darkness affects people. When you have the sun, even now, for example, you know, in the summer months, for example, in places like the UK and other places where the day is long, you finish work at 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., you come home, and you know that Maghrib is not coming in until 9.30. Just mentally, you feel like you can actually go and visit people, you can actually go and go shopping, you can actually go out with your friends, you can actually go out to the park, you can actually do stuff, because for you in your mind, just psychologically, the way that we are, is that we think that there is still plenty of time in order to be able to go and do things, because that's what daylight does for us, right? You wake up and it's nice and, and light also. Whereas in the in the winter months you wake up and it's dark, right? Some as some some of my friends said to me, you go to work and it's dark. You come home and it's dark. Meaning in the daylight that you have, you're stuck in an office building and you're just kind of behind the computer desk or whatever you're doing. You go you go to work, it's dark. You come home and it's dark. Right? Our children go to school and it's dark. They're kind of coming home and it's dark again, and so that makes it difficult for people sometimes on an emotional level and a psychological level in the way that they have to do things. And so Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is an amazing hikmah. In Allah Azza wa this amazing creation, not only of the sun, but each element of the sun. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the sun, those scholars who say that he then takes an oath by the uh, by another element, which is an element from the elements of the sun that Allah Azza wa has created. And that is the light that Allah Azza wa has given. And that light we use during the day. We, we know our salawat by it. We know that the fajr time comes in and sunrise comes in and you have duha and you have duhr and you have asr. And we have so many things that are that are marked by the sun and the way that we benefit from its light. That light benefits us in so many ways. The amount of electricity that we use, the amount of energy that we use during the daylight is far less because we don't need that light. And you will find in in in, in, in countries, for example, where they don't have access to that much electricity, as they were doing in the olden days, that once Maghrib comes in, everything kind of shuts down, everything closes. Why? Because there's no electricity, there's no artificial lighting. To keep you to be able to go and visit people, to be able to go and work, to be able to go and shop, the whole day is finished now. Right? We have obviously in our time artificial lighting, which changes our natural body clock and our natural system of waking and sleeping and the way that we do certain things. But the the light of the day is a sign from the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Allah Azza wa when he says waduhaha, it refers to the light of the day and its brightness. Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqeet he also mentions, and my point is that the word, a nice point, and that is that the word duha in the Arabic language also has within it the meaning of heat. Because the light of the sun also brings with it the heat of the sun, right? In this dunya, we don't get one without the other. You get the light and the sun, uh, the light and the heat of the sun together. In the evening when there's no light, then the heat also diminishes to a great extent. The two are together. And so he said the meaning of the word duha has inherent within it the meaning of heat as well. And so when you have, for example, Salat al-Duha, right, it is called Duha because it's in the morning and that heat of the sun is obviously greater at that time of the day. 
And that's why when Allah Azzawajal says, uh, said to our father Adam والسلام, when he entered him into Jannah, as Allah mentions subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in Surah Taha, he said to him, in Jannah, you will not become thirsty, nor will you have duha, meaning you won't feel that intense heat and light of the sun. Because that intense heat and light can actually sometimes become very difficult. Right? It's difficult to see. It's difficult to stay outside for long periods when it's extremely hot. It's difficult to do things when it's extremely hot and the, and the intensity of the light of the sun is extreme. Right? And that's why you have in places where it's extremely hot and, 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 and it's extremely warm, you have people taking a siesta at the time of dhuhr or after dhuhr because it's the time when it's too hot to do anything else. So people nap, they become tired and they like to sleep and rest during that time. They stay, generally stay indoors and they don't go out. And so that is the meaning of, uh, of al-duha. And so Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that we have the, the sun as an equation of Allah Azza a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the light of the sun. But alongside with the light from the meaning of the word duha is that you also have the heat of the sun as well, bidnilah ta'ala. So inshallah, we're going to, um, we're going to stop there, bidnilah ta'ala, today. I know it's a shorter lesson and I apologize for uh, making a slightly short. I'm currently traveling uh, because of some of my, um, my appointments and, and some of the things that I have going on. I'm going to have to cut today's lesson slightly shorter, but inshallah ta'ala, next week I will be back in the UK, bidnilah ta'ala. And so inshallah, we will continue from verse number two. And so any questions that you have or anything that you need to be clarified, inshallah, please put it into our comment section. Inshallah ta'ala, I will try to uh, check them out before our next lesson. So jazakumullah khairan, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he blesses us all and that Allah azza wa jal makes us from amongst the people of the Quran and the people who are given understanding of the Quran. هذا وصلى الله وسلم على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته